This morning, before we uh, have our scripture read for us, I'd like to ask you a question. I'd like to ask you, if you don't know, to have you think about what your metaphor for life is. What's your metaphor for life? The way in which you sort of compartmentalize or kind of frame how you see what life is all about. Is life a battle for you? Where there are winners and there are losers? Is life perhaps a garden where life needs constant tending and nurturing? Is life a bowl of cherries? It's just the pits. Or is maybe life a box of chocolates? <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. What's your operating metaphor for life? How do you think about, conceive, visualize what life's about? And the reason why I ask you this this morning is because we're about to engage in the study of a book over these next few weeks that I believe suggests that the metaphor for life, the default, the primary metaphor for us to understand what life is about is worship. And the book that I'm referring to is one that I know is near and dear to your heart. <laughs> Leviticus. Let's just get this out of the way right from the start. Raise your hand if you've actually read the book of Leviticus. Wow. Wow. All right. Now, let's, let's keep it honest. Raise your hand if you've actually read Leviticus cover to cover. Okay, turn around and stand and look in awe at the people around you. <laughs> How many of you have actually heard a sermon preached on Leviticus? Wow. All right. Hot dog. For the rest of you who didn't raise your hand, don't feel left out. Why would you? Leviticus is filled with instructions on animal sacrifice and priestly protocols, neither of which are practiced anymore even among modern Jews. And the rest of the book, if you've gotten to it, kind of comes across like a tedious mishmash of commandments about mixed fibers, seeds and skin infections, and a host of other commandments that we probably would say are irrelevant or are just plain common sense. But if you didn't raise your hand or if you maybe did read Leviticus and you might say you suffered through it, did you know that when a young Jewish child learns, learns to read, the first book that they're taught is Leviticus? The reason being that of all the books in the Bible, Leviticus has more direct quotations from God than any other single one. Leviticus is the starting point for Jewish children because as strange as this book may seem for us, as difficult as it may be for us to get through, the, it is the foundation of the identity of Israel for how they are to live, for how they are to represent themselves as the children of God. And I want to argue, I want to suggest for the next few weeks that as we read Leviticus, it will be for us an enhancement of our understanding both of who Jesus Christ is, but of also of who we are to be as the body of Christ in the world. If you actually read Leviticus, what you find is more than you might think. It's, it's more than just a series of mundane instructions. It's more than just a laundry list of how-tos and do's and don'ts. Leviticus serves as a means of us being in relationship with God and with each other. Leviticus describes how life is supposed to be built around the presence of God, of how life is to be worship. Life is worship. And the starting point of this book is this tabernacle that's placed in the center of the community, the embodiment of the presence of God, and out of that, life is to take place. Life is worship, Leviticus will declare. And for us, over these next few weeks, it's going to offer us a vocabulary for worship, for remembering what true worship is, for realizing what honest worship looks like. And I really think we need it as the church, not just grace, but the church overall, because I tend to find that our modern vocabulary when it comes to worship is pretty limited or shallow. And let me just give you a quick example. I can't tell you how many times, and it's not just this church, I've been to church when someone will say, well, I'll be in when worship starts 
or when does worship start? And what they mean is when does the singing begin or when does the singing end? As if that's worship. And worship is so much more. I mean, I think when we think about worship, why do we do this? How do we do this? We've forgotten key words. And even when we hear some of those key words like purity, sin, atonement, holiness, we really can't appreciate their nuance, their depth, their relevance to our modern lives and how significant they are to understanding what it is we are supposed to be about when we say we are worshiping. And so that's why, even though for many of you, you're on summer vacation, we're going back to school. Summer school, to read and immerse ourselves in the language, the vocabulary of worship through the pages of Leviticus. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be here. But today we're going to begin that journey by reading the first seven chapters of Leviticus together. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're going to look at the first seven chapters this week and next week. But just to get us a taste of that, Jack Woodbury, who is an intern with us this summer, is going to read to us from chapter 1, the first nine verses. So if you could open up your Bibles if you have them or the Bible that's there in the pew, we're going to read from Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. It's on page, I'm going to use the microphone. It's on page 69 of the Bible in the pew. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's son, the priest, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. He is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that is on the altar." He is to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering and an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jack. Now I want you to keep those Bibles open. Don't you close it. Don't you do it. Don't close the pew Bible, and if you have your own, I want you to be able to note some things. Um, again, there's so much here, so much we could talk about just in these nine verses, let alone seven chapters. And for two weeks, we're going to try to give you, point to some specific things in these two se first seven chapters. But before I start there, I just again, uh, the context here is in Exodus, the Lord instructed Moses to construct the tabernacle, that mobile home for God during the desert sojourn, the pro predecessor to what eventually would be the temple in Israel. And when the tabernacle was completed, this is where Leviticus starts. Leviticus starts at the completion of the tabernacle and God speaks to Moses. And you heard Jack read the first verse. What did God say to Moses? Speak to the Israelites and say to them, in essence, bring an offering. For the first seven chapters of Leviticus, it's all about the offering. Five of them, in fact. The Burnt offering, the grain offering, the guilt offering, the purification fellowship offerings. These offerings done over and over again, hundreds of times a day. And so as we look at this vocabulary of worship through Leviticus, our word of the day is offering. 
we are going to reflect on this word, this idea of the offering. Now, when I say the offering, if you're like most people, what you tend to think about is that part of the service that hasn't happened yet when the pastor, not God, asks for your money. When the ushers will get the plates and come down and pass them along. Or when you hear the word offering, maybe you think about that hour that you serve in the nursery or that you help out in the kitchen. Or when you hear the word offering, you might come, what might come to mind is those used items that you donated to the church or to the community at large. But what we're going to find, even in just nine verses, let alone seven chapters, is this biblical understanding of offering is much deeper, much more significant than what we often, what comes to our mind when we hear that word. And I want to look at four things in particular that, un, that just further deepen our understanding of the offering. And the, the first is that an offering involves the whole person. You see it right from the get-go, right as God begins to speak to Moses. Worship is life because worship is intended to be the expression of our everyday lives. And we see that in the institution of the offering. The offering has a very earthy feel about it. If as, as uh, Jack was reading, perhaps you started to go, this is exactly why I didn't read this book. Or this is exactly why I struggled through this book. Or perhaps if you read it and you were like, okay, this is disgusting. This is gross. What is being presented, if you can get past that initial feeling, is that the offering, worship is meant to be practical, relevant, inseparable from one's day-to-day -day life. It's bloody and it's messy because it's that practical, it's that relevant. And so when God speaks to the Israelites and tells them to bring an offering, when he begins to teach them about worship, he speaks into the day-to-day -day existence of their lives. He points to the harvest. He points to the herd. He points to the grain. He points to the cattle, the things that they're interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis. Right from the get-go, offering involves the whole person. There's not this compartmentalization of one's life, and yet that's often how we live. You know, there's Sunday, and then there's Monday through Saturday, but God says, no, an offering is supposed to be a reflection of your, the wholeness of who you are and of your life. You see this in the words, the instructions. With his own hands, his own hands he is to bring. God is saying right from the outset, you are to invest yourself in what you offer, your time, your energy, your resources, and you're to lay your hand upon it. And that the idea of laying your hand on what you bring is this understanding that when we come before God, we are to personally identify with what we bring. That is, that what we offer is intended to be an extension of ourselves. Another way to think of this is that when we come to worship before God, we are declaring our identity. We are saying, this is who I am. This is who I believe myself to be. I'm offering myself to you. This is not just a substitute for me. And many of us, when we've read Leviticus, that's the primary thing we've walked away from, is this was a substitute. And in one sense, there's a truth in that, and we'll get into that in Leviticus. But don't go so far that you miss the fact that what we offer to God is not supposed to just be a substitute, some poor shadow of who we are. What we offer, by laying our hands on it, what we're saying is this represents me. This is me. This is who I am. This is who I believe myself to be. And in light of that sense of vulnerability, of intimacy, by laying hands on something, it's probably shocking to most of us that the next instruction is he is to slaughter it. And again, we get caught up in that picture of, of, what that's, of what's described, and many of us are put off by that. But what I want you to see, if you can get past the fact that it's outside of what we're used to, our context, is this understanding of slaughtering it, as graphic as that description might be, pay close attention to what we miss, which is it's he is to slaughter it, 
The priests don't do the work. The worshiper does the work. The instruction for the person who is worshiping to slaughter what he brings out is to draw out this idea that we're not to be disconnected. We're to, the, our work is our worship. In other words, our worship is intended to be hands-on. We're not to be distance ourselves from it. We're not to remove ourselves. And one of the first things that you'll notice, the contrast between how worship is described here in Leviticus and worship as we practice it is, worship in Leviticus, as I've said, is bloody, it's messy, it's complicated. And yet for many of us, the way we've learned about church is church is neat and tidy. Many of us have gone out of our way to make sure we're neat and tidy when we come to church. And we're very concerned that everything that takes place is neat and tidy, whether it's in terms of time, whether it's in terms of how things flow, how the music sounds, we're all about neat and tidy. Not in Leviticus. Leviticus, there's this sense of getting down and dirty, getting into the, the, the true reality of our lives. And there's a sense of, of being taken apart. That sense of, of slaughter is that sense of really getting into the, the heart of things. Later on, when God will talk about the grain offering the, 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 uh, the, or the meal offering, there'll also be this, this, uh, this word that says, make sure that the grain or meal offering is made without yeast or honey. It's a little side note. Chapter 2 that you might just gloss over, but it just it builds on this idea of the offering involving the whole person. Because when God says, make sure it's without yeast or honey, it's not that yeast or honey in some way is detestable to God or that God doesn't like yeast and honey. The provision against having yeast and honey as a part of the grain offering has to do with this idea of don't make your offering in advance. Don't make it at home. Because the, the, the idea being sort of don't come and basically just kind of drop it off. Don't just phone it in. God wants us to be fully present in the moment that we worship. And yet for how many of us, you know, we, you know, we, we sort of get ourselves here in the morning, but we're kind of busy, we're kind of preoccupied. And so, you know, we, we basically, you know, we get here late or we're here and we're not actually listening to what's going on or paying attention. And we figure, you know, I'll ask my wife or my husband or I'll listen to the CD later. God wants us to be fully present. Don't, don't, don't. You know, divorce yourself from the moment in which you're in God's presence. Don't bring yeast and, and honey in your offering because in many ways that treats worship like a transaction. God wants us to be fully engaged. Our Father wants us to be totally focused, completely engaged when we worship. The way I like to think of this is, is Leviticus basically says that worship, offering, is a full contact sport. God wants our complete participation and engagement. That's a word for us this morning because I find, and it, it goes across the generations, the kind of things we worry about in worship, the kind of things we talk about is we get together to worship and we fret and haggle about whether or not we're going to sing. I don't like this song. Or I'm not a singer. I'm not going to sing. We fret and haggle about whether or not we have to raise our hands. Oh, it's that kind of church, huh? They're raising their hands. Well, as long as it's like this. If it's like this, I'm out of here. I mean, I'm just out of here. <laughs> we fret and worship about sitting and standing. Are we going to have to stand the whole time? Are we ever going to sit down? Are we going to sit the whole time? We're never going to stand? We fret and haggle about responding to prayers. Oh, it's a written prayer. I'm, no, I can't do that. Oh, I can't do that. I, those written prayers are just not real for me. I, you know, I, I can't do that. <laughs> These are all symptoms of a larger thing that Leviticus tries to blow up. We all come to church with what I like to call our church persona. What's your church persona? You have it. You know you have it. You know how I know you have it? Because when you see me at the grocery store at the mall, it immediately comes out. Oh, Pastor Chris, how are you? <laughs> just shopping for a few items. You know, just... Yes, and I was listening to the fish on my car radio on the way here. 
I'm not wearing my crucifix right now, my cross, but I have it. It's being cleaned. We all have our church persona. We do. You, we, 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 and, and yet Leviticus says, no, no, no. Come into God's presence with an honest expression of your life, your work, your home. Can you imagine what that would look like? If we literally brought in an honest expression of where our life, our work, our homes are like. I mean, literally brought something physical in. I don't know what that would look like. But even at a deeper level, think about this reality. When we come to church, we don't even talk at that level. We don't even talk about what's really going on in our lives, in our works, and at home. And you know why we don't? Because when we actually start to, someone will say, you might even say it yourself, well, they really can't talk about that because we're in church right now. What? Well, that's not really appropriate for church. Leviticus says that's exactly where it's appropriate. God wants us to bring the reality of our lives into his presence, not to create some, some, some compartmentalization where this is our church life and then this is the rest of our life. God says, I know it all. Bring it all into my presence. Offer yourselves. So, beloved, I ask you, offering as being about the whole person, what are we laying our hands on during the week? What are you laying your hands on during the week? What are you identifying with and saying, before God, this is me. This is who I am. Where are you truly engaged and invested? What are you bringing before the Lord? What is, are you not bringing before the Lord? What would you not be comfortable bringing into this space, bringing before God? The offering involves the whole person. And the offering, as Leviticus describes it, is also our gift. The offering is our gift to God. That's the second thing I want you to see. And I want you to contrast this. If you've studied Leviticus or if you've heard about the old priesthood of before Christ, the way we categorize it is we typically talk in terms of sacrifices. It was all about sacrifices. And sacrifice is there. And we're going to get into that as we go through Leviticus. But for today, I want you to understand that the word that we need to look at, and it's going to be another vocabulary word down the line, is atonement. And atonement, many of us think atonement means sacrifice. But as Leviticus presents it, especially in these first seven chapters, while atonement bears the flavor of sacrifice, the actual nuance of the word isn't about giving up as much as it's about giving to. And that may seem inconsequential, but it's hugely significant. The nuance of the offering is that it's a gift that we give to God. It's like the idea of a gift that you give to someone to pave a way, the way for a better relationship. Think of it, if this is hard for you to grasp, like the kind of gift that you bring to someone's house when they invite you over for dinner. We give to that person something as a gesture of respect. We give it to them as an expression of gratitude for their invitation and their hospitality. We tend to do this especially with someone we don't know, who we, whom we've just met, or for someone who goes out of their way for us. And that works for understanding the offering. Because what we need to remember, and what Leviticus wants us to continually realize, is that while God has revealed himself to us, we don't completely know who this God is. We see only in part, and we should always be mindful of this God, not in a scary way, but in an exciting and mysterious way, who we are coming to know. And that, that there's this world of difference between the things of heaven and the things of earth that we're coming to understand. And so when we offer ourselves, we're giving ourselves to God out of respect. We're giving ourselves to God out of gratitude for his invitation, inviting us not only into his covenant, but into his kingdom. When we offer ourselves, we are to be as con conscious about how far our father is willing to go and how close our father is willing to get in order to as the psalmist writes and as Jesus later institutes to prepare a table before us. 
And that's, that's, that's why for Israel, they had right in the middle of their community a visible, you can't miss it, sign of God's hospitality and God's invitation, a tabernacle. And it was a mind-blowing thing to think that our Father, the creator of the universe, you know, the beginning and the end of all things, localizes himself right in, geographically in the middle of the Israelite community. What hospitality? What an invitation? Why would you not want to give yourself to this God? Not giving something up, but to enter into that space. And if that blows our minds, the Israelites were not always thinking in terms of sacrificing about having to give something up, but wanting to be in that presence. If we can grasp that, it's even greater for us. Because while we don't have a tabernacle that's built where God's presence is in, Paul tells us it's even greater than that. Thanks to Pentecost, thanks to the Holy Spirit, we have become the tabernacle. That if it blows our mind that the creator of the universe could embody his presence geographically with wherever the Israelites are, the truth is, is that God has embodied his presence in each, inside each one of us. That God abides in each one of us. And in and, and so doing, it's not because he wants us to give something up, as much as he wants us to give ourselves to him, to embrace him with respect, to embrace him with joy and anticipation. So much of what we equate with worship, let alone Leviticus, has to do with sacrifice. This idea of giving something up, and I want to once again underscore this subtle difference between giving up and giving to. Can we be honest? When we think about giving something up, I don't care who you are, it's going to elicit from you feelings of resentment and being deprived. We're not in the Lenten season, but the Lenten season is like the one time of the year where we're okay with talking about, you know, giving to God. And many of us for Lent, Lent is about giving up something. So let, you know, and, and you know what it's, let's say it's Lent right now and you say, you know what, I'm going to give up caffeine for Lent. And you know what happens, right? All you can think about all Lent long is all the coffee you can't have. All the soda you're not allowed to drink. You're not thinking about God. You're, you're thinking about how ticked off you are. How many more days of this do I got to do? Why am I doing this? Why does God need me to do this? God doesn't need you to do it. That's giving up. It puts giving up, something up, puts the focus on us. We're not thinking about God at all. We're thinking about how much we are struggling and missing and resentful. But giving to, that shift, I'm going to give this to God, puts its focus on the recipient. It, puts, it brings joy and happiness to that person and in, in, in response brings joy and happiness to us. If I go and buy expensive chocolates for my wife, which, by the way, she mentioned in the first service, I never do this. Um, so I'm going to have to do that now. No, I don't have to. I don't have to. See, I just did it. If I go and give expensive chocolates to my wife, I'm in a hole that I'm not going to get out of. <laughs> if I go and I give expensive chocolates to my wife, I'm thinking of her happiness, how much she enjoys that. And in doing that, I get to experience her joy. And as a result of her joy, I become joyful. Guys, that's the way worship's supposed to work. Worship is supposed to be about acknowledging the worth of the other. And in the acknowledgement of the worth of the other, we receive joy. And in the first seven chapters, as I mentioned, five offerings are outlined. And these five offerings, I want you to, I'm going to go through them real quick. There's so much more I could say. But these five offerings, don't think about what you're giving up. Look at how they're what we're giving to God. And by giving them to God, we're giving them to each other. Five offerings, the burn offering. The burn offering was done at the entrance of the tabernacle. 
rather than at the main altar. The burnt offering was about one's entrance. It was like going through the door into the presence of God. And so this offering was about giving to God's, it was like about consecrating oneself, basically saying, I'm in, I'm coming in, God. I'm giving you myself. I'm entering into your presence. It was this idea of generally submitting to the will of God. The second offering, the grain or meal offering, took it a step further. It was recognizing God's provision of life, the land, the food, the seed, that basically this offering expressed was giving to God one's commitment, one's dependency, specific dependency upon the Lord. I'm not just generally acknowledging your God. I'm not just stepping through the threshold. But with this offering, God, I'm committing myself to you. I'm acknowledging that apart from you, I can do nothing. Apart from you, I'm dead because you provide all things. The third offering, the peace offering, was an offering, the only one that resulted in the sharing of the meat and the bread among the worshipers. And this was giving to God and our understanding of our common humanity. That through the experience of a common meal, we recognized and gave ourselves to this union that we're not alone, we're not disconnected, we're interconnected to God by being connected to each other. It was an expression of the interconnectedness of life. It was very much like our Thanksgiving meals. It was giving to God our thanksgiving that we are a community together, that we are a people of God. The fourth offering, the sin offering, and the, which we'll talk about next week a little bit more, and the guilt offering. The sin offering was about giving to God all the stuff that we need to let go of. It's a picture of confession. It's, a, it's giving to God all the junk that we're carrying so that we can be purified, so that we can be reoriented. And the guilt offering that came after it was giving to God the permission to cleanse our lives, basically to decontaminate us, to not just simply take what we need to get rid of, but to, to move us to repentance, to reorient us, reposition us, so that we're back where we're in the, with God in the center of our lives. So what are we giving to God through these offerings rather than giving up? We're giving ourselves to God, consecration, the burnt offering. We're giving the commitment of our lives to God through the meal offering. We're giving ourselves to each other in communion with God. We're giving our sins to God, coming clean, holding nothing back, and we're giving our guilt to God, allowing God to cleanse and change our hearts. How significant that shift is, how transformative. And later on in these seven chapters, God just shows you even more about how he wants us to give ourselves to him. He wants to receive this gift from us when he makes this provision that, look, in the, in the offering, in any of these offerings, if the person can't afford and God continues to provide different ways in which someone can come into his presence. And the idea is that God wants to meet us where we are, that everyone has something to offer, that God wants everyone to participate. In other words, worship is not about how much you have. Worship is about what you do with what you've been given. Beloved, what are we giving to God? To God, not giving up for God. What are we giving to God? Is our primary focus about all the stuff we have to give up? Or is our primary focus the things that God wants us to give to him? Everything. What are we doing with what we have been given? Are we holding on to it because we're afraid God's saying, well, what I've given you, you have to give up? Or do we realize that what we've been given, God gave to us so that we would give it back to him and to each other? One of the more endearing stories in the Bible for me concerns a woman, you remember this story, who breaks open a jar of expensive ointment and lavishes it over the head and feet of Jesus. Do you remember this story? And then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. If you remember this story, you'll remember that those who were observing This extravagance couldn't help but get all righteous about it. You know, why waste such expensive perfume? That could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. But Jesus stops him and says, whoa, stop. Leave her alone. 
Why do you trouble her? What she has done, Jesus says, is beautiful. Beloved, what I want you to see in remembering that story is the woman is epitomizing what we've been talking about. The woman is offering herself as a gift to God. She's giving too. And notice, just like I said, that the offering's about the whole person. She gets down on her knees. She gets into the thick of it. She doesn't just present the jar at Jesus' feet and say, you can use this later. She opens it up. She breaks it. She pours it on him. She's using her hair to dry his feet. She's flesh to flesh. Worship involves, the offering involves the whole person. It's a gift. But what's also in this picture of what an offering is about, which, by the way, when the critics talk about this, Jesus doesn't rebuke, is that, our offering is supposed to be costly. When the critics say, this is an extravagance, this is, this is worth a lot of money, Jesus doesn't go, well, it's really not all that much. Jesus doesn't deny that at all. But he says that it's beautiful because it's costly. And Leviticus echoes this. Because Leviticus, you heard it in the instructions. Jack read it. When you come to make an offering with your hands, your hand on it, your gift to God, offer a male without defect. What we're supposed to offer, in other words, Leviticus says, what offering ourselves in worship is about is our bringing our best. Worship is not intended to be cheap. What we offer is intended to be a true reflection of our sense of the worth of God. What we offer is our way of expressing how we value the relationship that we have with God to our lives. Have you ever thought of it like that? When I say it's costly? Our commitment in worship is to bring the best. We're not just to come casually, we're to come attentive and eager to bring the first fruits, the best of what we have. Worship is about bringing the bounty of our lives, not the scraps. And yet for many of us, we come to church with the scraps. If we come to church at all. Many of us aren't coming into worship because we, let's talk about value and worth. We value and wor have put worth behind other things. That by the way, God's present and we're just not acknowledging that he's present. Worship is about bringing the bounty of our lives, not the scraps. So for the Israelite, you selected your perfect bull from among your herd or your sheep or, your, or the birds of your flock. Whatever your socioeconomic status was, you brought the best. You didn't just go out into the de desert and trap a wild bull or, or run to the store on the way and grab a, a pigeon, an animal that didn't really cost you anything. The idea the costliness of the offering was the animal, what you offered had to be yours to give. And it had to be your best. There's another story. Real briefly, King David, in the midst of worship, gets a little annoyed when someone basically tries to give him one of their bulls to sacrifice. And I don't know if you remember this story, but you'll remember the punchline. The punchline is, is David, in his annoyance, turns to that person and says, I will not make an offering to the Lord, my God, that costs me nothing. I'm not going to offer your bull because it's not mine. I'm going to offer something from me to my God. So, beloved, the question is, if the offering is meant to be costly, is what's it worth to us? That's the $64,000 question. What's it worth to you? You know, my, one of my least favorite parts during the offering is some of you are prepared in advance and you have checks, but sometimes if you're a guest or you're here for the first time and all of a sudden you see the ushers in the plates, you kind of look around, other people are looking at me, you, oh, so I gotta, you grab your wallet. And I've done this. I'll, I'll confess it before I was a pastor. That I, I did this in church. And you're like, okay, I'm not prepared. I, I can't not let the plate pass and not give anything. So I open my wallet. What do I got in there? I got a couple of singles. I got a five. Ooh, a 20. Ooh, a $50 bill. I'm going to split the difference. I'm going to give the 10. <laughs> and so how many people, 
as a pastor, being in that space myself, you see them in the midst of that struggle. I mean, it's, you're opening your wallet of, am I going to give the 50? That's the best I got today, or am I going to give something else? What's comical about that to me, guys, is if we're struggling with opening our wallets for, what, five minutes in church, and we're stressing about whether we give a 10 or a 50, if we're stressing about that, how much more are we stressing about opening up our lives to God? I've shared this before, but it just fits perfectly here. I did an internship at an African-American church, and my first Sunday there, Pastor Tim, they took the offering, and they take it like we do, except that when they're done, they bring, the ushers bring up the offering, and the pastor stands there and receives it. And I was sitting back there that first Sunday, and they came up with the offering, and I'll never forget this. They come up, and they place it in his hands, and he looks down, and he goes, gives it back to him, sends him back, and says, this is not your best, church. I said, this guy's not going to be here next week. <laughs> said, if this is what being a pastor is, I quit. I'm not, not doing that. And, but what I'll remember even more in that moment, because I had, could see them as I see you, is as the ushers went back, and I'm thinking, they're going to get the tar and pitchforks. Every, I, I didn't see one person with an angry look. Everyone went, <laughs> full on, just, yep. They weren't bringing their best. They weren't bringing their best. Just to bring this home one other way, as we still struggle with our best. I want to ask you to raise your hand, but have you ever overpaid for a sports ticket or a concert ticket? You ever said, man, game seven, Spurs, heat. I got to go to that game. It's sold out. Okay, I'm looking on StubHub. I'm going on eBay. Ticket price was 85. Now it's 1,500. It's worth it. It's worth it. I'll pay $1,500. Who's in concert? What? I can get front row seats. How much? It's worth it. Now, some of you may go, or gas, I heard a little gasp, maybe like, oh, I would never do that. Everybody has their price. Everybody has their price. What's your price? What's worth it for you? Is it an article of clothing? Is it a car? Is it a vacation place? Is it what, everybody has their price. Everybody has something that is worth it, no matter what the price. The question is, is our relationship with God worth it? Is our relationship with God worth it? What value do we place on that relationship? Is our relationship with God at the center of our lives? That same way we have that joyful exuberance, no hesitation. How much for that ticket? I get to see that game. I will pay it. Cha-ching. How many of us, when we enter into that space with God, when God calls us, not just our wallets, but with our lives, says, I will do it. Yes. I offer it. It's going to co cost me everything. Why this is so significant for us to get, and if you're still struggling with it, what Leviticus will draw out as we go through it, is that the reason why we are called to give our best, the worshiper is called to bring the best, is not because God is vain or arrogant, and he's like, well, I have to have the best. I'm the Lord. God can create whatever he wants. God doesn't need our best at all. God, but the reason why there's this calling for our best is because the worshiper's gift of their best signals their total surrender and dependence upon God. We can talk about surrendering our lives and depending upon God all we want. We can say that. But you know the moment you do it, when you take the thing that you value the most, when it means the most to you, it's worth the most, and you say, God, here it is. That's when you know you are living in dependence upon God. That's when you know you have given everything over to God. And that's why God calls for the best. He, and he tries to impart this to the people throughout the different ways the offerings are done to continually reinforce, don't 
Don't come cheap. Bring the best. He says to them in the offerings, don't eat the fat. The fat was considered the best of the sacrifice. It was represented all of the sacrifice. Burn the fat. The fat belongs to God. Don't take the best because the best belongs to God. Not the best of the meat, the best of you. Don't drink the blood. Later on, Leviticus will say why. Blood is the life and life belongs to God. Don't consume blood because life belongs to God. Don't presume to hold back everything from God because it belongs to him. The truth is why God calls us to give our best is because when we actually give what we value and is worth the most to us, what we're really doing is we're just giving back what already belongs to God. What he gave us in the first place. That animal that was killed represented a complete life given over to the one who saved their lives. And while it's true that the sacrificial system in Leviticus foreshadows the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus for sinners, which we'll talk about, it also foreshadows the sacrifice, the offering of Christians. God's acceptance still invites our best, our surrender, our dependency. And in Leviticus, what does total surrender look like? This archaic book that we get bored with. You want to know in Leviticus what total surrender and dependency upon God looks like? It looks like honoring God with every fiber of your clothing, every cell on your skin, every morsel on your plate, every hour of your work, every moment of your rest, all your responsibilities, all your relationships totally devoted to God. No compartmentalization. Christ is your life. Jesus is everything and God's presence permeates it all. And the last thing is that what we see here in seven chapters, and it's easy for us to not see this, is all of these offerings, the offering of our lives, all it is, not that it's not significant, but all it is is a response to grace. Our offerings do not secure our salvation for all the blood that gets spilled, all the things that are detailed. This is not what saves us. Grace alone makes us God's people. So important you get where Leviticus starts. Where Leviticus starts is where Exodus ends. And the Israelites were God's people before the tabernacle was ever built and before a single offering took place. They became God's people by his grace of leading them out of slavery in Egypt. That's what made them God's people. All that comes after is a response to that grace. In the same way, we are God's people because of what Christ does for us on the cross and through the resurrection. And everything else is a response to that grace in our lives. And so all of those offerings that are in Leviticus are not reliving the same sacrifice. It's not earning our way to God. And when we come to communion, which is in some respects our, our, the pinnacle of our offering, we're not continually sacrificing or Christ is being offered again for us. What's happening is we are celebrating living out of the affirmation that we have been claimed by this God. And that's why at the end of the sacrifice, the end of an offering, it talks about being, it being consumed by God, that the aroma was pleasing to the Lord. Please understand that God isn't hungry. God's not going, hmm, smells pretty good. Yahweh isn't eating. Don't miss the picture that's there in Leviticus as the offering is consumed. The smoke rises heavenward, this intersection of heaven and earth. To help you get this, imagine what it must have been like can you imagine what it must have been like to walk into the tabernacle and watch your most valuable assets going up in smoke? For some of us, that terrifies us right now. But imagine walking into the tabernacle, bringing your best and watching it go up in smoke. But don't stop there. Imagine what's the remainder of that picture. God, as he appeared to the Israelites in a fiery cloud engulfing the tabernacle. And then in that moment, when you're all the things that are most important, you go up in smoke. His smoke meets your smoke. 
And it becomes this sweet aroma. It's transformed into his likeness. It's perfect communion. Beloved, it still is. That's what this is all about, this sacrament, this table. We gather around it and it signifies God offering everything, the best of what he has for us, the body and blood of his son Christ. But our partaking of it, when we come with open hands and open mouths, it signifies that we are offering ourselves to this God. And in that moment, his smoke meets our smoke. And it's this perfect communion. And all that's left after we come is for us to live out, to celebrate this grace that we've been given. Maybe Leviticus isn't such a strange book after all. Maybe behind all the rituals and observances that are detailed here, there is a divine vocabulary. The grammar and the syntax that we long for to become a holy people. To be a visible sign of an invisible grace. Maybe it, all of what we've learned today and what we'll continue to learn isn't about changing what's about to happen next. Right after I'm done preaching, we're going to take the offering. Maybe it's not all of a sudden about just reorienting how we feel when the ushers come forward with plates. Maybe what we're learning isn't just about how we enter into Sunday morning as a space. Maybe if worship is our lives, if our lives are our worship, then what the Lord has revealed to us today through his word is realizing that we don't just take an offering for him, but that our lives, how we live them, how we reflect his image out there, how we engage each other is our offering to the Lord. I'll close with this as food for thought. The tagline at the end of what Jack read and it's repeated throughout Leviticus is that the offering is supposed to be pleasing to the Lord. That was the point. And my food for thought is, do we ever ask if our offering, if our worship is pleasing to the Lord? You know what I hear a lot in church? Is whether worship was pleasing to me. You know, I, I don't like that style. I don't like that song. I don't like this. I don't like that. Please hear in Leviticus that there's no point where God says, how's this working for you? Would you prefer it to be a little less bloody? Would you prefer it? Would, is this inconvenient for you? Is this hard? Do you, would you like a different style? Maybe if we, we slaughter the animal in a more humane way, that would be okay for you. I'm serious. For many of us, our default response when we enter into worship is whether or not it's pleasing to us. Where do we step back and ask, the question that, that transcends that, which is, is it pleasing to the Lord? Because here's the thing. What we've seen is that for our worship to be pleasing to the Lord, it has to involve the whole of who we are. For our worship to be pleasing to the Lord, to the Lord it has to be a gift that we give to God, not something that we just give up. For our worship to be pleasing to the Lord, it's costly. It's bringing the best of what we have, not holding anything back. When those things are present, when God is at the center, when we are giving ourselves to him as a gift with, with complete value and worth, it is pleasing to the Lord. And here's the thing, if it's pleasing to the Lord, it's good worship. And if it's good worship, it don't really matter whether you like it. What matters is whether you're going to be present in it. And the problem in the world in which we live is we got so much choice, we can hop around to whatever church or find whatever on TV we want. We can, we can make worship how we want it to be. And I'm going to tell you the hazard of making worship the way you want it to be, which doesn't mean you can't have a preference. But when that trumps whether it's pleasing to the Lord, you are not worshiping him, you are worshiping you. And why that's so important is not just because I want you not to go anywhere, not because I'm trying to hold on to you here at Grace, 
Why that's so important we understand that we confront that is because at the end of the day, what this is really all about when we talk about being pleasing to the Lord is we have been called, much like the Williams, out into the world. We have to understand what an offering really is because we are the offering. We have been called in living our life to be an offering on behalf of Christ for the world. The world is waiting for God's offering of peace, God's offering of forgiveness. The world is looking for this offering of reconciliation. The world does not know what holiness looks like. The world does not know what an offering of thanksgiving and praise truly is. We are the ambassadors of Christ, Scripture proclaims. Where once the priest laid his hands on the offering, what's so phenomenal about what gathers us here is Jesus Christ has laid his hands on us, the church, and through the authority and power of the Holy Spirit, he says to a waiting world, this is me. We are Christ. This is my body. Here I am standing at the door and knocking. And Paul, if you think I'm just making this up, profoundly affirms this truth in a single sentence in his letter to the Romans in chapter 12 when he says with just great Passion. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, your lives, as living sacrifices, offerings, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. We're just getting started. I invite you to actually read Leviticus if you haven't, and to read it again if you have, and to read it in a way to allow it to change your metaphor, to see your life as worship, to see how you live your life as an offering to God, and to see how in that shift of perspective, it will not only transform how you live, it will change how you experience the life that God has put before you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.